Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I got a Halloween episode for you. Dr. Harry Cridge is here. He is a veterinary internal medicine specialist, and he is joining me today to talk about maybe why we shouldn't be so afraid of pancreatitis. We're talking about pancreatitis panics today. We're talking about the horror stories of how pancreatitis cases go wrong and uh, and what's real and what's not. We are talking about common pitfalls and the treatment of the condition, how to effectively work these cases up, and finally, how the new drug Panaquel CA1 works in these cases. Guys, quick, to the point, super useful, and, uh, and one less thing to be terrified of. Guys, let's get into this episode, but before we do, I just got to stop real quick and say thank you, thank you to Siva Animal Health for making this episode possible ad-free. Guys, let's get into it. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Henry Critch. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, it is it is my pleasure. So for those who do not know you, you are on the faculty at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Michigan State. You are a boarded veterinary internist, and you are a researcher, and your research uh, focus is in disorders of the pancreas. And so um, I wanted to have you on today to talk with me a little bit about uh, about the scariest part of the abdomen, in my mind, which is the pancreas, which is where, when you make it mad, Bad things happen, and I, 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 I want to ask you. Here's what here's what I'm looking for for you. I, I want I want a little bit of comfort in my uh, in my treatment of of pancreatic disease and illness, and um, I just there's it's in my mind the pancreas is kind of this glowing red button that I really don't want to press, and um and so I, I want I want to talk to you in realistic terms. I, I just want to start a high view about sort of pancreatic disease and illness, and I wanted to sort of ask you about what are the most sort of common pitfalls that we make in treating pancreatic disease, um, and let, let's just start there. So I again, I, it's it's is a sort of a scary thing for me, and so so let's just start at, at how much is a risk and, and what are the most common risks. Yeah, so I think I think in order to you know effectively talk about treatment of uh, pancreatitis, we really have to think about how we diagnose um, the disorder um, and sort of what our goals are, and that may vary dependent on you know the clinical situation you're in. Um, historically, um, you know people used to use pancreatic biopsies, um, but we all you know know that they have significant you know limitations. They're invasive. They're costly. Um, they're and these- terrifying. Yes, and they're, they're they, terrifying. They I... Not good anesthetic candidates. Um, so we've fortunately largely moved moved away from that for that very you know terrifying reason. Um, right. But but it does put us in a position where you know we're now reliant on an overall assessment of the clinical data that we have. That may be the okay. patient history, maybe the signalments, and it may be the results of imaging and pancreatic lipase assays and you know we ourselves then become the gold standard um and while that's you know fantastic for us and fantastic for job security you know we do need to be very aware of some of the limitations of some of these diagnostics so that we can accurately interpret them and and do the best by the patient 
Okay, let's let's drill into this a little bit. So, so I I am I am intrigued here. So I I I like your I like your idea. You know, the pancreatic biopsy is is generally I am not doing those, um, and so it makes me feel good that that's not sort of accepted standard, uh, and we've kind of moved past that. Talk, talk to me talk to me about the limitations in the standard in the standard tools. So so my impression with pancreatitis is you know I I I kind of do some voodoo. I think most veterinarians sort of do. I look at the patient. I'm feeling the abdomen. I'm looking for clinical signs. I'm looking for obvious pain or discomfort. I'm looking for the general dumpiness. I think that that's a, a clinical term is dumpiness. Yeah. I'm looking at the general dumpiness. That I'm looking at the blood work and I'm kind of squinting at the at the lipase and mm-hmm. and I know that that's not a I know that probably I don't know how much that means exactly. I, again, I'm I try to take it with a grain of salt, but I'm definitely looking at amylase, lipase, things like that. I'm going ah, and then and then my my pancreatic lipase, you know, uh, snap test, things like that. Um, but even then, I still know that there's there's a big range of what is what is clinical and maybe where what is what is diagnostic and and so anyway can can you can you sort of flesh out in sort of more specific terms what you mean when you say you know we we have to be careful in 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 making a diagnostic here and and there are shortcomings in how we do this yeah so i think um you know as, as veterinarians we have to sort of think ultimately what is the purpose of the test that we perform um and, you know, in a case where we have a patient that's, you know, clinically unwell, has cranial abdominal pain and we're suspicious for pancreatitis, then, you know, the question becomes, what do we have to rule out in order to not change how we treat this patient? Um, okay. And in those like cases, you know, we may get away with, you know, limited blood work, some level of pancreatic lipase assessment and, you know, a radiograph to rule out the foreign body that we don't want to miss. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, practically... Um, that may be what we need in a first-time offender with, you know, no other complications. But that patient that's not getting better or that patient that keeps coming back, that's probably a case where we need to be a little bit more solid in our diagnosis to make sure we're treating the right thing. Um, okay. And that's, I suppose that's where we have to look a little bit more closely at the limitations of each of the diagnostic tests we have. And you mentioned a, a few of those diagnostics, um, predominantly blood work biomarkers, um, lipase, amylase and pancreatic lipase. Um, And what I like to encourage people to think about with those particular assays is, you know, lipase and amylase, they can come from multiple different tissues. And why that matters to us as clinicians is if they're elevated, we can't say for sure that it's coming from the pancreas. You know, it could be coming from another organ system or it could be not getting excreted properly, you know, the problem with the kidneys or something else. Um, so we try to find an assay that is the most specific to lipase from the pancreas. And the hope there is, you know, if that's elevated, the pancreas is inflamed, the pancreas is annoyed. Um, so we try and pick a more specific test. Out of those tests, the pancreatic-specific lipase or the quantitative test um, that often gets sent out to the lab is going to be the most specific one, the one that we can put most, you know, strength in our diagnosis behind. Um but we do also have to be aware that there are other diseases outside of the pancreas that can also irritate the pancreas. We know for a fact that, you know, if the, the abdomen is angry, the pancreas is also angry. Um, so just having the, the elevated lipase on its own is not going to be enough. We need to gotcha. still do imaging and look at all that data together. And that's why we run into to some challenges is we can't rely on a single test um, so it's, it can be challenging to get all those diagnostics and convince our owners to do those. But the cases that probably need that the most are those cases that keep coming back, 
or those cases that aren't responding to standard of care therapy. Talk, talk to me a little bit about your perspective on uh, ultrasound, uh, ultrasound as a diagnostic tool in pancreatitis. How, how much value is that over, over you know, radiography just to, to rule out foreign bodies? Um, can you just, just wade in a little bit on that because you haven't, you haven't mentioned it as a diagnostic tool. Yeah, so I think, you know, those those lipase assays have to be combined with with some level of imaging. Um, ultrasound is, you know, the, the one that's most classically used. Um, and ultrasound is very valuable in the fact that we can really see if there are any changes to the pancreas consistent with pancreatitis, but also we can help rule out other, you know, abdominal disorders that could cause similar clinical signs. Um, one of the times that we run into some some challenges with ultrasound is there's been a few studies recently that have, have looked at those cases that you may have seen in practice where you finally convince the owner to do the lipase test, the ultrasound, and you, you think you're doing a great job, and then all of a sudden, all your test results disagree with each other. Um, and you, you're like, well, what do I do now? And, and that patient population certainly does exist. Yeah. Um, we're getting more data out now to try and explain why those discrepancies are occurring. Um, and I think one of the things we have to think about is, you know, these are biomarkers of disease. And each biomarker of disease or each imaging finding um, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to to develop and a certain amount of time to disappear. Um, and the the preliminary data that we have is that any of the biomarkers of inflammation, so pancreatic lipase or C-reactive protein, any of those inflammatory type of biomarkers, have relatively short half lives. So they're going to go up um, relatively quickly after an injury to the pancreas, but they're also going to fall off relatively quickly. With most um, data out now saying that within two days of, um, you know, diagnosis of pancreatitis, that pancreatic lipase is going to return to within the reference interval, whereas ultrasound changes may persist for longer. So when we're taking a single time point in these cases, you know, we don't know where exactly on the, on the upswing or the downswing of those lipase markers or the ultrasound we're going to be, and that's when discrepancies can occur. Um, so the way that we um, are trying to uh, work on that in in practice is, you know, thinking about these tests as more dynamic than we, you know, originally did. I think we used to say, okay, we've got my diagnosis, we're good to go. Um, but those cases where there are discrepancies, they're probably cases where we need to do, you know, either repeat imaging or repeat lipase or repeat SNAP test to see how things are changing over time. And that can help further solidify that diagnosis. So thinking about the half-life of some of these tests and thinking about, okay, if they disagree, let's get another time point and see, you know, which direction are we moving? And are we moving towards agreement? And it was a very relatively recent injury, or are we getting further apart? And it was probably a past pancreatic injury. When when you think about uh, gastroenteritis, pancreatitis, do you see sort of levels of disease, or do you look at a? Is there a mild pancreatitis in your mind, or are, are they always to be sort of worked up the same way? Um, talk, talk to me sort of about about severity in the disease as you see it. Yeah, so there's certainly you know fairly substantial variations in in the degree that an animal is whether they're clinically affected by pancreatitis or not. Um, you know, at the referral level, uh, we get a lot of the, the severe pancreatitis cases, the, the one that causes the most, you know, stress, but also the most fun. Um, but there are a lot of cases, that, you know, in practice where, you know, you can make the diagnosis and, and sometimes treat them, you know, on an outpatient basis. And we'll touch on that a little bit later when we talk about treatment options. Um, but yeah, there's certainly a, a big, big spread. Um, 
And I think there's probably the fact that some animals have chronic disease that we under-recognize and they have an acute on chronic flare and they typically are a little bit more mild, in my, at least in my opinion, versus, you know, the first time really severe acute disease. What do those acute on chronic cases look like to you? I mean, how, how do I not look at this and go, well, this is acute pancreatitis. How do, what should I be looking for if I'm, if I'm trying to catch on to that? Is it just that I've seen this patient before or, uh, I yeah. Think, I think it's, you know, twofold. One is, you know, if that patient keeps coming back and, you know, keeps getting diagnosed with pancreatitis, I think the likelihood of these being, you know, independent events, or specifically if they're in short succession, is probably lower. Um, and it's probably had some level of chronic, perhaps subclinical inflammation going in the pancreas between um, flare-ups. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, ultimately, a lot of these patients come in on an emergent basis. So we're all focused on stabilizing these patients and getting them to where they need to be. Um, but when we, you know, take a step back and think about asking more detailed questions, often these animals will have more substantial GI histories than they're initially reported. Um, and we actually found that in a, a study we did uh, relatively recently, I think last year, we took um, you know several hundred dogs that had, had elevated pancreatic lipase concentrations, and we um, surveyed and looked at you know clinical presentation of these dogs, um, what risk factors for disease they had, um, and also how many of them had past episodes of GI disease. And it was a, a, a significant number of them that had these chronic GI histories that perhaps go, you know, under-recognized on, on first glance. That, yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, it's funny. I, I love that you called out sort of emergency cases where they show up and you're the emergency doctor and you have no idea what, yeah. you know, what the rest of their file looks like. And I, I think about cases I've seen, you know, and you kind of look at this at this patient, especially if it's, you know, a 10, 12-year-old dog that's kind of had GI upset, diarrhea, you know, things like that throughout its year. It's easy to kind of just gloss over that and not really say, hey, is this something that's that's related to what we're dealing with today? And so I, anyway, that's a that's a arrow I'm going to put in my quiver. I, I need to start start looking for the chronicity of that. So anyway, I, I love that you say that. How do you um how do you start to well uh, let me just ask you this again, because I said this is sort of a fear a fear episode for me. How, what mistakes do you see as people start to address these and, and decide how they're going to treat these cases? Uh, do you, do you see, uh, um, I don't know, do people tend to be, to be less aggressive than they need to be? Or are there, are there tricks that you say, oh man, I don't know why doctors consistently, you know, don't do this or talk to, talk to me a little bit about how people struggle to treat these cases. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, this sort of touches on, on both diagnosis and treatment in terms of diagnosis. There was some you know, common pitfalls. And again, I don't always think that these are the, the fault of the veterinarian. It's often, you know, the situation you're in and the finances that you have available to you. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of cases where clinical signs and an abnormal SNAP test, you know, it's not, it's not a guarantee of a diagnosis of pancreatitis. There's a lot of other diseases where, you know, it's either a false positive test, which is proposed in the literature, or this animal has some level of pancreatitis, but it's secondary to whatever else is going on. Um, so relying on just the SNAP test is, is probably not great, um, particularly in cases that are recurrent. Um, other things that, you know, we sometimes see um, is, you know, those patients that keep coming back, um, we're all really, really good at managing those acute pancreatitis cases. We, you know, we get them on fluids when we can. We treat them with pain medications as we can, and we get them better. Um, I think one of the things we sometimes um, you know, don't put as much um, time into is thinking about are there any identifiable risk factors to prevent this animal keep to keep coming back? Um, so in those patients, 
measuring a triglyceride concentration, looking to see if they've been on drugs that have been associated with pancreatitis in the past and whether they need to be on those drugs. Um, some of those common ones is, you know, anti-seizure medications. And some of those, you know, you of course can't come off, um, but it's worth looking at and, and thinking about, and especially screening for lipid disorders or endocrine diseases. They're the cases that when we identify those and treat those, um, my opinion is they've got a reduced chance of uh, recurrence and reduced chance of coming back in with a severe disease again. I like it. That, that makes sense. One of the new things this year that I've really seen a lot of discussion of is the Panaquil CA1 uh, medication that just sort of just came out it is conditionally improved by the FDA. Can you talk a little bit about the role that you see in, in uh, Panaquil CA1 playing in, in treatment of these patients? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, uh, Panaquil CA1 is, is a, a new drug on the block and there's a lot of you know excitement about it. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement because you know for many, many years, uh, we've been restricted to just, you know, supportive and symptomatic care in these patients. Um, and we all know from our own experiences or from the literature that as hard as we try, there's often, a, you know, significant morbidity and mortality, especially with the severe cases. So having a new option um, is really exciting. Um, I think, you know, it, it has got conditional approval. Um, so over time, they will need to work towards full approval. Um, but it's really exciting to have a new a novel treatment on the block for these um, tough cases. Um, the way that the drug works is it's a drug that acts on neutrophilic inflammation. So um, the way that, um, you know, inflammation is obviously strongly associated with pancreatitis. So the theory behind this drug is if we reduce the amount of neutrophils that come out of the blood vessels into the tissues, we're going to reduce the amount of inflammation. Um, and therefore, you know, help this patient. The way that it does that is it focuses on how those neutrophils come out of the vessels. So we think all the way back to vet school, we think about sort of the rolling, the activation, the adhesion and migration of neutrophils from the vessels into the tissues. And that Panaquil or the Fusoplatib acts on one of the key players in that. So the key player acts on is something called leukocyte function associated antigen 1 or LFA1, um, and that is a specific molecule that allows that neutrophil um, to um, subsequently extravasate. So that fusoplatin blocks the activation of LFA1, which then prevents it from being able to go into the tissues. So it stops that neutrophil extravasation. What is the what's the impact if I catch this late, right? So so I understand that that the, I, I understand the the you know, s slowing down, reducing neutrophils coming out of, out of the vessels. That, that, that makes sense to me. But it feels like if I uh, it inherit a pancreatitis case and everything is already fl flared up, am I, am I still getting benefit from this medication? Yeah, so I think, you know, certainly what we know so far based on the, the studies that are out there is that it has been shown to improve the clinical signs associated with the acute onset of pancreatitis. Um, and that was a fairly broad uh, patient population that was used in those studies. Um, we do, you know, over time, I think we're going to work out when is going to be best to use this medication. Um, but when we really think about it, there's a lot of these cases where, you know, the degree of inflammation is what's causing the challenge. Um, if you get in nice and early and prevent that um, severe neutrophilic inflammation, you know, in theory, that would strongly benefit the case. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of utility in using this early in the course of disease. Um, later in the course of disease, of course, helping with any level of inflammation is going to be a benefit. Um, it's just working out 
you know, how, how beneficial it may be in those particular cases. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, getting back to sort of our horror theme, uh, what, what are the side effects? Are, are, are there, are there contraindications uh, that we're looking at, things like that? Um, the only sort of labeled contraindication is, you know, don't give this do- drug to a dog that is allergic to the drug, which, you know, is, is a, a classic yeah. um, and one that's, you know, always on the label. So that's the only, you know, labeled contraindication. Um, as with any new drug that comes out, you know, there's certain ways that we can look for adverse effects. One of those is to look at the safety studies. And one of that is to look at any adverse event that was reported um, in the efficacy studies. So when we look at the data, and that is available to anybody um, on the FDA website, um, the, the Freedom of Information Summary for the particular drug, um, you can look and see you know, what adverse events occurred in the patients that received the drug and what adverse events occurred in those that didn't receive the drug or those that received the placebo. Um, a lot of the adverse events that were reported are you know, GI upset, some elevations in liver enzymes, and, and, and various other adverse effects. Um, and any of those could be either from the underlying disease or from the drug administration. So that's why we try and look at, you know, what happened in those that got the drug and what happened in those that didn't get the drug. Um, and the other place we look is the the target species safety data, again, which is publicly available to any veterinarian out there that wants to look at this data firsthand. Um, and in those type of studies, what they do is they give the new drug and they give it at higher doses and for longer periods of time than is on the label. And they look to see what happens. Um, so for Fusoplatib or Panaquil, um, it's like a five times overdose. And they give it for nine days instead of three days. And they look to see um, you know, what happened in those populations. Um, a higher blood pressure was noted in, in those dogs on, on you know, significantly high doses of the medication. And there was some injection site swelling in one dog, I believe, um, among some other adverse effects. So right now, you know, it's it's hard to be 100% sure what's the drug and what's not, because a lot of the clinical signs that were reported are things that we see in pancreatitis. You know, the dog that's right. vomiting, the dog that has nausea. Um, so we can't definitively associate those with the drug. But as more and more people use the drug and more and more data comes out, I think we're going to have a, a much stronger idea of the, the specific nature of that. Um, drug. Tell me about the route of administration and and the time to effect. I mean, how do we how do we get this on board? How long does it take before we start to see benefits? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the drug is given um, once daily for three days, and it's given intravenously. Um, in terms of um, you know what data has been used for the drug approval is was the clinical improvement in the clinical score system um, by day three, the end of the drug administration, but. The next sort of question is, you know, it's, a, it's an injection. So um, how do I store that and, and what can I use it for? So it's a medication that comes as a, a like a powder, a lyophilized drug, um, and it's mixed with a sterile diluent. And it's then um, stored in the fridge for up to 28 days. So once you have this drug in practice, you can store it for, you know, up to 28 days. And it's a multi-dose vial. So it is really, really useful for, you know, multiple patients. Is there anything that says I have to give this intravenous injection to a hospitalized patient? I mean, sometimes I'm trying to help uh, help patients that they may have they may have money constraints. Sometimes we have you know sometimes we treat uh, complicated cases on an outpatient basis. Anything that says I have to I have to have the patient in hospital uh, does it need 24 hour monitoring anything like that? 
No, absolutely not. So the, the medication is, you know, it's a once a day medication and it is intravenously. Um, but there's there's nothing specific about the drug that would mean that they would have to be hospitalized between those injections. Um, so I know there's, you know, a lot of cases in practice where we are treating these outpatient, um, whether it's a milder case or, you know, financial limitations or, you know, or frankly, you know, the staffing available in the hospital to manage these as an inpatient. Um, so I think it certainly has utility in outpatient management as well as inpatient management. Awesome. Dr. Henry Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for uh, thanks for making me feel safe about pancreatitis. I appreciate that. Uh, are there any resources that you really like any anywhere that you would point people if they, they want to learn more? Yeah, so the the CIVA Connect website is is really, really useful. They're putting a lot of really clinically relevant information um, about the drug on that website. They also have um, a dehydration wheel, which is designed for those veterinarians in practice where, you know, you may not have always have the, the amount of time to fully calculate fluids or, you know, be or you perhaps just want somebody to double check you. You can enter the patient's weight, the level of dehydration, and it'll tell you what sort of fluid rates might be appropriate for that particular patient. It's a lot of really useful things just for the, the general management of pancreatitis on there. Um, we um, at Michigan State have put out a, a review article on pancreatitis in, in both the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine um, and JABMA and the clinician's briefs. There's a lot of you know publicly accessible um, data on how we we treat these patients. And you know, at the end of the day, we'd love to hear you know what, how other people treat these patients. The more we talk about pancreatitis and the more we learn from each other, the better chance we have of, of improving the outcome in these patients that you know don't always have the same outcome that we we would hope for. No, that's amazing. I'll put links to all these resources down in the show notes. So everybody can check them out. Guys, I hope you'll take a look. Gang, thanks for being here and listening, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Awesome. Thank you. And that's it. That's what I got for you guys. I hope you'd enjoy it. Thanks so much to Dr. Critch for being here. Thanks to Siva uh, Animal Health for making this episode possible. I hope you learned something. I hope you're going to be able to put this to work so that maybe it makes your pancreatitis cases a little bit less scary. I know it will for me. Anyway, take care, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye.